Undeniable is our loyalty. Undeniable is our zeal. Undeniable is our fury. Undeniable is our martial power. Undeniable is our devotion to the emperor of mankind and to the memory of our Primarch. Among the Adeptus Astartes, it is we who have stood the longest, who have bled the most, who have wavered the least. Our legacy has been over 10,000 years in the making. Yet, in a single instant, in a single moment of laxity, it might all be for naught. There are those who once called themselves Dark Angels of the First Legion, those who betrayed everything. They declared war on their brothers and their gene father. They were led by the man who should have been most loyal, the most staunch in his love for the Primarch. To this day, his weakness, his vanity, threatens to undo everything the lion sought to build. By his false loyalties was noble Caliban torn asunder. We mourn its devastation still. By his late realization of his own frailty were his fell followers scattered. By his tainted hand was our gene father struck down and lost. By our righteous hand will his followers be made to repent. Sons of the Lion The Dark Angel's deepest history is shrouded in mystery, not merely due to being thousands of years in the past. Successive Dark Angel's masters and veterans have deliberately obscured it. The truth is hidden within chapter mythology, concealed by circles of metaphor and allegory, or sealed behind barred doors. Knowingly or otherwise, the events of the chapter's past have shaped the life of every son of the lion, and will likely do so far into the future. Only the most veteran warriors of the Dark Angels and their successor chapters know what happened when Lion L. Johnson returned to Caliban after the Horus Heresy came to an end. Luther was a knight of Caliban who had discovered the infant Primarch of the Dark Angels, a feral child living wild and unkempt. He appeared at first to Luther to be a savage creature. Rather than slay the young lion, Luther brought him to civilization. A deep bond of brotherhood and friendship formed as they hunted together from Caliban's dark keeps, and Luther was granted guardianship of the planet during the Horus Heresy. In L. Johnson's absence, however, something bitter entered Luther's heart, and he fostered rebellion in those dark angels serving under him. When L. Johnson's fleet reached Caliban after years abroad, Luther ordered his warriors to fire upon it 
The battle that followed shook the Dark Angel's legion to its very core. Thousands were slain by those they once called brothers. Caliban cracked and heaved as super-nuclear ordnance and high-powered laser blasts struck it from orbit on the lion's orders, before the Primarch ordered his warriors to make planetfall. The most pivotal battle of all was fought between L. Johnson and Luther, who was infused with the powers of the Dark Gods, and more than a match for the lion. Though the Primarch was victorious, he could not bring himself to slay his former friend. In this moment of noble hesitation, Luther struck back. The lion was left mortally wounded. As Luther looked upon the grievously injured form of the Primarch, a veil was lifted from his eyes. He realized the full magnitude of what he had done. His sanity was shattered. It is told that Luther's anguish echoed through the warp, churning and boiling so violently it brought psychers across the galaxy to their knees. Its power was so great that a warp storm emerged to engulf Caliban, though how this came about is beyond the speculation of even the most learned of the chapter's librarians. The tempest destroyed almost all of the planet, weakened as it was by the fleet's bombardments, and pulled those fallen dark angels who served under Luther into the warp, casting them throughout time and space. When the surviving loyalist dark angels sought out their Primarch amidst the ruins, all they found was Luther, reduced to a gibbering wreck. He ranted that the Watchers and the Dark had taken the Lion away, and that one day the Primarch would return and forgive him. Luther was captured, imprisoned, and hidden from sight. The Dark Angels searched everywhere for their gene father to no avail. With but a portion of their homeworld still intact, thousands of their number dead and their Primarch lost. The Dark Angels faced numerous challenges and obstacles as they looked to an uncertain future. The Lion had imbued in his gene sons a stoicism and self-sufficiency, built over years of being the First Legion, that which paved the way for those that followed. Never before had the Dark Angels drawn upon their resolve as they did in this moment, for the Imperium was now a very different place to what it had been before Horus had turned on the Emperor. In the aftermath of Horus's failed rebellion, the Imperium seethed with mistrust and anarchy. Even with the eventual success of the Scouring, many Imperial worlds operated without oversight. Piracy was rampant, ignorance was widespread. The authorities that attempted to fill the void left by the Emperor, by now ensconced on the Golden Throne, 
at a million and one tasks following up any leads of treachery that still tainted the Imperium. Suspicion hung over everyone and everything. Investigation after investigation yielded corruption in every strata of the Imperial society on thousands of worlds. Pyres burnt for weeks on end as heretics were put to the torch. Blood flowed in rivers as executioners' axes were blunted on the necks of traitors. The Imperium was steeped in paranoia, recriminations and vengeance. That innocents were slaughtered in these campaigns of retribution is certain, and the Dark Angels knew they were guilty. They believed that should any learn of what had occurred in Caliban's last days, they too would be declared excommunicate traitorous. Already an insular brotherhood, the Dark Angels' legion turned inward further. The Masters enacted a plan to ensure the legion survived what it had endured. They were determined it would. The Dark Angels were, in a manner of speaking, reborn, rededicated to serving the Imperium. None could be allowed to doubt their resolve or commitment in such trying times. The Masters knew, however, that zeal alone could not be enough. All of the Legion was sworn to secrecy. No brother was to ever reveal the events that transpired on Caliban. They knew no one outside the Legion could learn of what had happened. What the Dark Angels did with the tens of thousands of serfs, astropaths, tech priests, and other non-space marine support staff that undoubtedly bore witness to Luther's treachery and the destruction of Caliban has long since faded even from the Dark Angels' records. In addition to the vows of secrecy, the senior elements of the Legion formed a secret conclave known as the Inner Circle. Though these were dangerous times indeed for the Dark Angels, they were not without their advantages. The Imperial authorities launched a multitude of inquiries into the chapter. It was impossible to conceal the loss of Caliban, Lionel Johnson, and a considerable portion of the Legion's strength and fleet. But the inquiries found nothing, thanks to the upheaval in the Imperium. Traders remained in abundance. Xeno species kept in check for decades grew in confidence, striking again and again. The investigators lacked the time and resources to carry out the kind of thorough inquiry that might have revealed the cracks in the Dark Angel's cover story. The Legion's intensely reclusive manner was put down to the terrible losses that they had sustained, and they were largely left to do what the Imperium needed them so desperately to do, fight humanity's enemies. The Dark Angels sought new recruiting worlds and readied their fleets for fresh campaigns. They fought with remorseless dedication, earning admiration and gratitude 
from all quarters. Countless were the battles fought in these times, the names and details of which are almost all lost to history, their accounts buried in vast data stacks or rotted away in forgotten corners. Nonetheless, the Dark Angel's reputation as a legion made up a truly steadfast warriors was reinforced during those years and continues to be maintained. The Dark Angels only learned later that many of the fallen had survived the events on Caliban. This was a new vulnerability. Any one of the fallen could reveal what happened. Yet it was also a boon, for if the Dark Angels slew the fallen, absolution could be theirs. Thus, they made it their mission to hunt them all. The Inner Circle After Horus's rebellion failed, the shattered Imperium was in a state of turmoil as Imperial authorities sought to regain control. It was in this time that the Inner Circle was formed, a closed network of the Dark Angel's most senior warriors. The Dark Angels swiftly agreed that what transpired on Caliban was to be kept secret at all costs. Every surviving battle brother was sworn to silence. All recognized that the Imperium's state of paranoia could easily result in the Legion being declared excommunicate traitorous. Though the Dark Angels were subject to scrutiny, Caliban's destruction was impossible to hide. The sheer scale of the challenges faced by almost every Imperial world and every branch of its organizational structure meant that the Sons of the Lions never suffered the intense inquiry that might have revealed the weakness in the Legion's cover-up story. The Inner Circle took shape over a period of decades and centuries, evolving from an ad hoc formation into a formal conclave. The Inner Circle ensured that the Dark Angel's ways grew more monastic and ritualistic. They emphasized the need for strictness, discipline, and brotherhood, as did the second founding chapters after the Dark Angels embraced the Codex Astartes, an act they undertook to avoid further suspicion. As time went by, the number of warriors who had witnessed what had befallen Caliban dwindled to none. The dark secret of that grim time lived only in the memories of later generations of the Unforgiven Chapter's inner circles. To this day, only the Deathwing, Select Masters, the Interrogator Chaplains, and Librarians of the Chapter have any real knowledge of the Unforgiven's past, and most of them are deeply ignorant of the full extent of the Dark Angel's hidden knowledge. Ezekiel is a stern and uncompromising character who rarely speaks outside of chapter rituals or during interrogations of the fallen. 
Even the purest of the chapter feel unsettled by his gaze, as Ezekiel has the ability to read the intentions of any individual. One glance into his good eye, the other was replaced with a bionic at the Battle of the Silurian Gate, reveals the look of one who has stared deeply into souls and found something wanting. It is this trait in particular that is so vital for assessing the worthiness of candidates for the inner circle. One in three politely decline promotion, knowing Ezekiel will probe their minds for as long as it takes to ensure their worth. Stories persist of those who have failed to meet Ezekiel's exacting standards or whose minds were not strong enough withstand his psychic interrogations. Some are said to have vanished or been locked away in dark cells, though none will confirm or deny what is told of them. Regardless of the truth, these tales ensure only the most pure of heart consider themselves worthy for elevation. Ezekiel was recruited on Delphina III, discovered, branded, and scarred in lightless ovulette by Dark Angel forces, purging the heretic population. Codicere Meroth, part of the Dark Angel's force, could sense the young Ezekiel's immense psychic potential from many miles away. Ezekiel progressed through the Librarius ranks incredibly quickly, outranking Meroth within ten years. Such was his awesome power that he gained the rank of Grand Master of the Librarius, because the former Grand Master, Danathia, stepped down from his position and awarded it to Ezekiel. As Grand Master of the Librarius, Ezekiel is the Keeper of the Keys. With the privileges associated with this title, he can open all portals on the rock save but a handful. He has never been told of these locations, but as he walks the rock's corridors and passageways, he can sense the area shielded from his psychic gaze by ancient esoteric technologies. Another vital duty of his role is guardianship of the Book of Salvation. Within it, the name of every fallen ever captured is written in the traitor's own blood. Most archangels have no idea of the tome's true significance, but will die to protect it. As keeper of the unseen ritual, Lazarus is responsible for collating ancient knowledge of Caliban's ancient orders, much of which is held only by the inner circle. In recent years, he has more than earned this esteemed position. He has fought in many wars against the forces of chaos, those combating Magnus the Red in particular. He earned the esteem of his superiors defending the rock from tides of demonic invaders as a sergeant of the Fifth Company. But seeing his revered home tainted by such creatures affected him deeply. He wanted vengeance. 
By the time of the Stygius campaign, when Magnus the Red was attempting to draw an entire sector into his gasp, Lazarus had become the master of the Fifth Company and had been inducted into the inner circle. Though eager to fight the forces of the archenemy, he maintained a cool head. Thanks to his careful leadership, the disaster at Rimnock was prevented from developing into a full rout, though he was savagely wounded. Such were his injuries that the only way to preserve his life was for him to cross the Rubicon Primaris. He survived the ordeal, and included with his new war gear was the Spirit Shield Helm, newly forged and gifted to him by the Dark Angel's Tech Marines. Incorporating a shard of one of Old Caliban's Stone Guardians, this masterwork projects a mystical warding field, protecting Master Lazarus and nearby warriors from all but the most devastating attacks. Lazarus has seen too many battle brothers slain by the evils of the warp, and the only time his trademark calm fades is when he wages wars against psychers. He faced the forces of Magnus the Red in battle alongside the Grey Knights in a daring raid against the planet of the Sorcerers to disrupt a terrible ritual of the Crimson King. Though the strike was ultimately successful, a great many Dark Angels were slain or had to be abandoned in the withdrawal. Each day Lazarus carries his shame for these losses and his hatred for the forces of chaos and the thousand suns burns ever deeper. On every tier of their chapter's organization, the Dark Angels have a bewildering array of ancient rites and traditions. From the Feast of Malediction and the Rite of Sins Renounced, to the three-day mind chant of the Iron Penance, and the recital of the Liturgy of the Thrice Avenged. Most sacraments are led by the Dark Angels' chaplains, often accompanied by company masters. Many of these only involve small groups of robed and hooded figures, but others are delivered to whole companies, or even, though very rarely, the entire chapter. Some are instructional, some involve oath-taking, while others are mysterious, leaving neophytes in awe at the unusual proceedings. All, however, are cold and solemn ceremonies, for the Sons of the Lion are serious-minded and believe in a singularity of purpose, that of absolute devotion to defeating the Imperium's foes. None of the Dark Angels' ceremonies are without meaning. Whether or not all of the participants understand it is another matter. The door is truly opened when a Dark Angel joins the inner circle and learns some of the chapter's secrets. The epiphany of the moment strikes like a silent thunderbolt as all the lessons, rituals, and apocryphal tales coalesce into a single terrible truth. 
Through devotion to these traditions, the masters strive to make their brethren stronger in mind, body, and spirit. Indeed, with the galaxy torn asunder and the power of the warp rife throughout it, never have these ceremonies and observances been of greater import to the Dark Angels. Hunt for the Fallen The Fallen's continued existence is anathema to the Dark Angels. It is a persistent stain on their honor that must be purged in its totality. That those who turned upon the lion and caused his demise are still alive is an affront to those of Eljonson's sons who fight for the Imperium still. For the unforgiven to be redeemed, their traitorous brethren must be hunted down and made to repent. Those loyalist dark angels that survived the destruction of Caliban believed their traitorous brothers were all slain in the warp storm that tore Caliban apart. During later attempts to discover their lost Primarch, Dark Angels librarians came across the psychic signatures of the Fallen. They determined that their traitor's brethren yet lived. The Dark Angels masters met this revelation with typical stoicism, despite the turmoil it caused. Many feared the Fallen would reveal the Legion's secrets, for the traitors had no reason to conceal what they knew and were in themselves evidence of the calamitous events on Caliban. On the other hand, the Fallen were an opportunity for absolution. Should the Dark Angels successfully capture them and force them to repent? Thus began the Dark Angels' secret mission, and the driving force behind their actions for millennia to come. Each of the Fallen found their own way of surviving in the wider galaxy after being spat out by the warp, whether alone or in groups. Many embraced chaos, becoming heretic Astartes. Some of these even ascended to demonhood. Others lived life as pirates and raiders. Fighting was all they knew and all they believed they could do. A handful rose to become mighty tyrants, enslaving worlds or even star systems. Not only were many of the fallen scattered throughout space, many also found themselves spread through time. For these souls, thousands of years passed in the blink of an eye. The realization of what had happened to them, and what was lost, drove many to madness. Thus, they wreak horrific violence and rave aloud the terrible knowledge they hold in memories unaffected by the passage of years. Not all of the fallen who dwell in the galaxy are the same warriors who fought for Luther at the end of the scouring. Some who escaped Caliban 
had the skills and knowledge to produce space marines, and a handful somehow acquired the means to do so. A number of fallen groups have even managed to build considerable strength and replace the losses they have sustained over the millennia. To the Unforgiven's inner circles, these are among the most dangerous of all, for each new space marine created by these traitors pushes the Dark Angel's absolution further away, and makes their secret harder to contain. Some of the fallen regret their past actions. They live a lonely existence, becoming mercenaries, or integrate themselves into hidden parts of Imperium society to work toward some kind of noble cause. The hunt for the fallen has never ceased, and never will until all are captured, though the Unforgiven can fight for decades with no sign of them. L. Johnson's loyal sons are nonetheless eternally vigilant. Most of the wars they partake in have little or nothing to do with the fallen, though they scour every battlefield for signs of sedition, corruption, and human augmentation. Though most Dark Angels have little idea what it is they are searching for, those of the inner circle understand the subtle clues that might aid them in hunting the fallen. The Unforgiven have other means of finding their quarry. The Master of the Watchers is responsible for a network of tens of thousands of human agents scattered throughout the galaxy, ever vigilant for the slightest clue. Almost all of these people are heavily psycho-indoctrinated with no idea that they even serve the Dark Angels. Most live normal lives in deep mines at the top of hive spires, aboard void crossing vessels, and everywhere in between. Most will never encounter the kind of information that could spur them into action, but should they discover anything they follow pre-programmed protocols to ensure what they learn reaches the chapter. They will use methods so subtle and signals so banal that even if identified by others, their communications resemble nothing of significance at all. On occasion, a member of the Fallen has been captured by other Imperial forces, with no idea who they have in their midst. Often, none believe the tales these captives tell, the stories deemed as heretical lies to all but the most well-informed of Inquisitors and Space Marine Captains. More than one Inquisitorial safe house has fallen silent over the years, its captives going missing after a mysterious and devastating raid by unknown assailants. Those fallen captured by the Dark Angels are taken to the Rock, where they are subject to hideous excruciation and forced to repent. Those that do die quickly. For others, their fate is more agonizing. Many die with curses on their lips. Some accept their fate, 
seeing it as the price they pay for their actions. Others expect a different kind of salvation for their souls in the warp after death. The Rock The Dark Angels have had no fixed home world since Caliban was shattered in the wake of Luther's rebellion. What is now known as the Rock is all that is left of that world. Preserved by mighty force fields and honeycombed with labyrinthian tunnels and chambers. A void-born hunk of solid rock fitted with enormous engines. It is larger than the heaviest class of imperial warship and is fitted with a vast range of formidable defensive weapons, cavernous docking bays, and wide-reaching comm arrays. Following the breaking of Caliban, the Dark Angels made the rock their new base of operations. There are few gloomier places, for although the warp storm that devastated Caliban could not penetrate, the Dark Angels' fortress monastery's ancient shields, the Tempest left an indelible mark. The force field over the fortress monastery held, but was rent with cracks. To this day, there exists a disturbance within the field's protective shell, as if part of that storm still rages within. Chain lightning arcs around the artificial atmosphere that surrounds the rock, briefly outlining the ruins that crown the vast craft. The Dark Angels explored the halls and dungeons beneath the fortress monastery in the aftermath of the battle. There they reclaimed the horde of machinery that had sat untouched since the little understood age of technology. Many of the devices from that apex of human invention still worked, like the Great Shield Generator itself. But their mechanisms were now unfathomable. Although the existent halls were large, a massive labor carved out deeper and deeper catacombs beneath the asteroid's bedrock, excavating room for the entirety of what was left of the Legion. With the aid of the tech priests of Mars, docks were later added, allowing for the entrance of spacecraft. Although it took centuries to complete, the rock was also outfitted with warp engines, allowing the Dark Angel's headquarters to travel across the galaxy. While artisans crafted halls full of clustered columns rising to arched vaults, and much decorated ceremonial crypts to hold the Legion's precious heirlooms, the rock is nonetheless a grim place, full of echoes and cold stone. Given the rock's vast size, plethora of heavy weaponry, and the large fleet of Dark Angel vessels that escort it, it is hard for those that have laid eyes upon it to not immediately consider it impregnable. To the horror of the Dark Angels, in recent years the rock has felt the tainting presence of the followers of the archenemy. In the wake of Noctis Aeterna, 
the fallen demon prince Morbas and legions of his demonic followers invaded the rock. How he achieved this feat remains a pressing mystery to the Dark Angels, one that the chapter's librarians, interrogator chaplains, and tech marines labor to solve by order of Supreme Grand Master Azrael himself. The slaughter Marbes inflicted and the damage he caused was terrible, yet the Demon Prince's forces disappeared as swiftly as they arrived. Only Azrael has any understanding as to why the attack happened, and why it ended so suddenly. Thanks to knowledge of secrets, only he is privy to. A Supreme Grandmaster leads each chapter of the Unforgiven. Rule over each chapter falls to a council formed by the Supreme Grandmaster and the most senior members of the chapter's inner circle, including the Grandmasters of the First Company, Second Company, Reclusium, and Librarius. It also includes a number of company masters, some of which carry titles from the Codex Astartes, such as Master of the Fleet or Master of the Arsenal. Others bear appellations that are unique to their chapter, such as Master of the Watchers, Keeper of the Unseen Ritual, the Silent Champion, Seneschal of the Five Hundred, or Master of Condemnation. Not all titles are in use at any given time, and many have a purely ceremonial role, the original purpose of which has long been forgotten or suppressed. The Unforgiven chapters largely follow the Codex Astartes. However, while the Codex's mandates concerning organization and size are followed in companies 3 through 10, the first two companies deviate in nature. In the case of the Dark Angels, these two companies are titled the Deathwing and Ravenwing, and rumors persist that they do not conform to the standard company complement of a hundred space marines. The Dark Angel's equivalent to the Master of the Forge is the Master of the Rock. Upon ascending to this rank, the Master of the Rock is permanently spliced into the control nave of machine banks deep within the rock. It is his solemn duty to placate the rock's machine spirits and direct the maintenance of the engines that allow the enormous vessel to travel the galaxy. It is his mind alone that perceives the workings of the force field that shields the rock. His auger senses monitoring every inch of the asteroid's outer shell. The previous masters of the rock, whose flesh has withered, are left in place, their mechanical upgrades still working while their bones eventually fall in dusty heaps below. Because of their allegiance to both the chapter and the Adeptus Mechanicus, no tech marines can join the inner circle, and this includes the Master of the Rock. He is, however, 
privy to many secrets relating to the fortress's vast hoard of ancient technology that few dark angels know of and are barred to other techmarines. During the salutation to the new servants of the machine god, new techmarines are told that three areas of the rock are off-limits. The upper reaches of the old fortress monastery, the vault at the end of the Halls of Silence, and the Door of Secrets. They are also ordered to ignore the strange signals from the storms over the rock's ruins. The Ultima founding sends shockwaves through the chapters of the Unforgiven. Almost overnight, thousands of space marines who had not undergone the strenuous trials the Dark Angels and their successors put their recruits through were to join the chapter's ranks. Not only that, but there were numerous new chapters made using Lionel Johnson's gene seed. While some of the Unforgiven were welcoming of their Primaris brethren, others regarded the Grey Shields and Ultima founding Space Marines with a great deal of mistrust. Over a period of years, these warriors proved themselves in battle, and Azrael eventually decided that they could be inducted into the Inner Circle if declared worthy. None bar him know his full reasons for doing so for none are completely privy to his theories on events rumored to be taking place in the Somnium Stars. The Ravenwing Black-clad huntsmen and masters of the art of lightning warfare, the Ravenwing race before their chapter like thunder before a storm. Rising speed and mobility above all else, they are an integral part of the Dark Angel's battlefield strategies, as well as a powerful asset in the Unforgiven's secret quest. The Ravenwing is the Dark Angel's second company, and is a specialized formation that takes to the field in rapid assault vehicles manned by the chapter's most capable riders and pilots. The warriors of the Ravenwing are selected for their skills with the fastest assets and are given more advanced training upon their induction to the company so that they can perform even more incredible maneuvers, adopting new formations that only the Ravenwing know. A new inductee can expect to master the beat of the unfurled wing, the strike of the piercing beak, and the slash of the bladed claw within months of joining, pushing himself and his allocated vehicle beyond what he thought possible. Attachments of the Ravenwing accompany most Dark Angel's strike forces, where their skills are put to use in reconnaissance missions and boxing back what they have learned to the main force. On occasion, warriors of the Ravenwing form their own strike forces for missions of particular import to the chapter. Regardless of their battlefield tasks, when the Ravenwing fight, they strike at precise moments, 
gunning into action in a burst of thunderous acceleration. Their squadrons, formerly made up of a mixture of bikes, land speeders, storm speeders, invader ATVs, and others, break up into their constituent parts. They sweep aside all resistance in a roaring tide of black armor, moving between numerous attack patterns seamlessly to encircle, entrap, flank, harass, and break apart enemy formations. Such a relentlessly fluid way of making war ensures they are not bogged down even by the most numerous foes, and allows them to wear down much larger forces. Some of the Raven Wing's most important assets are the teleport homers many of them bring to battle. These are the devices by which Deathwing Terminators can manifest onto the battlefield with unerring accuracy, delivering the death blow to an enemy already ravaged by the Ravenwing. This also gives us a clue as to the Ravenwing's role in the chapter. Though none in the second company bar the Grand Master and Black Knights are aware, it is their task to hunt down the Fallen. To carry out such a vital duty, each warrior of the Ravenwing must be exceptionally skilled, as well as having a dedication to the chapter that is beyond any doubt. Few Dark Angels are as likely as they to be exposed to the malicious lies of the Fallen, and therefore they must be thoroughly unquestioning. The warriors of the Ravenwing are always monitored to ensure there is no weakness in their armor of indoctrination, and that no spiritual turmoil or corruption simmers in their minds. Talon Masters are the Ravenwing equivalent to the Lieutenant, and typically are elevated to this role from the Black Knights. They are selected for their commitment to the hunt as well as their aptitude for command. They also have to be independent of thought, for they are often given command of smaller detachments as part of a devastating flanking attack or secret missions. Those who survive in the Ravenwing long enough learn to take mobile warfare to another level of proficiency. If they can pass the seven rites of the Raven, Brutal ceremonies that test not only skill, but also the extremes of chapter loyalty. They will be inducted into the Black Knights, and initiated into the Inner Circle. There, after taking part in the long and solemn ritual that culminates in the vow of the Beast Slayer, they will learn the real reason behind the Ravenwing Hunt. Whether deployed on their own, or forming a veteran corps in the center of a larger Ravenwing spearhead, the Black Knights, mounted upon MK4 Raven pattern bikes, are the ultimate weapon of the Grand Master of the Ravenwing. Although Dark Angels rarely recount battle deeds or heroic tales, unless doing so addresses some special need, the Black Knights' Ravenring brethren often cannot hold their tongues 
as they speak in wonder about the fighting prowess of their company's elite battle brothers. The STC for the large chases of what was later named the Landspeeder Vengeance was discovered in M36. It was around this engine that the Dark Shroud was developed. Of all the archaic relics deployed upon the field of battle by the Unforgiven, the Dark Shroud is perhaps the most unusual. Those who have witnessed it at close range and felt its collisionous pall are disturbed forevermore. How such a device came to be is a tale that began when much of the planet of Caliban was engulfed and ripped apart by a warp storm. Only that which was protected by an ancient force field of prodigious strength survived. The collision of that storm with the indestructible force field, however, had many repercussions. Some contaminant leaked past the shield's perimeter. Amidst the debris of the ruined fortress monastery that survived the warp storm, there stood statues, carved figures from a past age. Their stone eyes had seen the tragedy that had befallen the Emperor's First Legion, and they now glowed with mysterious power imbued with the energies released on that fateful day. The Stone Guardians, or Ten Brothers of the Order as they were known, were taken into the rock and locked in stasis in the reclusium for years. It wasn't until the desperation of the Vendetta campaign that the Dark Angels at last felt compelled to unleash the statue's arcane power upon the battlefield. Each statue was mounted upon the chases of a landspeeder vengeance, with great cables siphoning off their esoteric energy and amplifying it. A power field of indeterminable origin ripples outwards from this ominous relic, obscuring Ravenwing brothers from enemy fire. The Ravenwing's oversized second and third squads have traditionally provided the pilots for the Dark Angel's arsenal of sleek aerial fighters, of which the Dark Talons and Nephilim jet fighters are unique to the chapters of the Unforgiven. Though lightning fast and equipped with ancient and esoteric weaponry, the most terrifying feature of the Dark Talon is not a weapon at all. Concealed within the craft's hull is a small chamber, little more than a metal tomb that echoes with sinister, whispering voices, into which a captured fallen can be loaded for transport back to the rock. This holding cell has the capacity to engage a stasis field to prevent escape if deemed necessary. For the captive, such an act would be a mercy. Otherwise, they spend days or longer trapped in a void-dark casket with the voices of the lost gnawing at their mind, knowing that, at the end of this torture, another awaits them on the rock. The STC for the Nephilim jet fighter was discovered on the hunt 
or suspected fallen Baylor the imposter. The technology, designated the Lionheart engine, was used to modify older designs. Though to placate machine spirits, many elements were left untouched. The result was a highly agile fighter capable of achieving aerial dominance. On the suggestion of Ravenwing Battle Brothers since then, the Nephilim has been improved on a number of occasions, producing an aircraft that can rival almost any other in the galaxy. The Deathwing Renowned as one of the finest fighting forces in the Imperium, the Deathwing are the chapter's mailed fist. No foe is too great for them to subdue, and no mission is too difficult or dangerous for them to complete. Their reputation is such that the mere sight of their bone-white armor is enough to put many foes to flight. The Dark Angels have such incredible resources that they can outfit their entire first company, the Deathwing, with nigh-on impenetrable Terminator armor, lightning-wreathed power weapons, and towering relic shields. All being members of the Inner Circle, the Deathwing are the primary force to which the task of capturing the Fallen is assigned. Thus it follows that they be equipped for such a task, for the Fallen are duplicitous and dangerous in the extreme. Only the most skilled and loyal Dark Angels can join the Deathwing, and must survive exacting rites of initiation that stretch and test them mentally, physically, and spiritually. Among other things, they must go through the March of the Shattered Crowns, perfectly perform all 13 blade sequences of the Argent Spire, and recite from memory the hours-long ninefold invocation, an ancient tract written in Old Calibanite that none can fully translate. Only when they have completed these tasks to the satisfaction of their betters do they begin to learn the truth of Luther, gradually taught in a tightly controlled manner. In this time, their shame and contempt grows. They become more angry, more hate-filled, and thus more committed to capturing the fallen to secure the chapter's vengeance and absolution. Such a mentality breeds devoted and unquestioning warriors who follow any order to complete the chapter's goals, no matter their callousness. The Deathwing are a hard-hitting assault force, launching battle-deciding attacks to shatter the foe in a short time frame. They do so either by pinpoint teleportation strike or aboard a variety of armored assault vehicles such as Land Raiders and Repulsors. Their trademark is the perfectly placed strike aimed at the enemy's most vulnerable point. Such assaults are almost impossible for the enemy to stop, 
and have won battles on numerous occasions. When not dispatched to engage the fallen, Deathwing warriors are sent on the most desperate missions, boarding infested space hulks, carrying out unsupported alpha strikes, or attacking the most horrific enemies. Possessed horrors, Xenos monstrosities, earth-shaking demon engines, and any other monstrous terrors that call the galaxy home. A number of Deathwing accompany most Dark Angels strike forces, not only for the veterans' conflict-winning power, but also because, should it be required, it can undertake secret missions on orders originating outside their strike force's command structure. Those who join the Deathwing and learn the chapter's secrets believe they have discovered everything there is to know about the Dark Angel's past. They are wrong. They have merely entered the first ring of the inner circle. There is more to uncover, only revealed to them when they are deemed ready. Warriors new to the Deathwing are prepared for the secrets they have yet to learn in the same way that other Dark Angels are gradually prepared for greater levels of understanding. The Deathwing Prize only combat skill, monastic asceticism, and selflessness, and care little, if at all, for the strong reputation they have earned throughout the galaxy or the esteem in which they are held by their allies. They detest arrogance and false platitudes. Seeing these as weaknesses that were possessed by Luther and those who followed him, they view their abilities as the minimum standard required to accomplish their goals and feel no compassion, remorse, or fear. Devotion to the chapter is all that matters to them. The Deathwing Knights are the most proven warriors of the Dark Angels' first company. Robed and cowled, Deathwing Knights are an imposing sight, for in them lives on some semblance of the Lion himself. They too embody silent strength and a veiled yet palpable nobility. In these stratified circles of the Dark Angels, Few are higher than they, and there are few who do not aspire to one day join them. Displaying might in battle is not enough to join the Deathwing Knights. A Deathwing warrior must be wholly dedicated to the chapter and obsessed with the secret hunt for the Fallen. When a member of the Deathwing is deemed potentially worthy, he is brought into the Chamber of Judgments to face a series of individualized challenges to test his strength, resolve, and loyalty to the chapter, past any breaking point he may have. Should he prevail, he is granted the title of Knight. The appearance of Deathwing Knights upon a battlefield is portentous, for they are rarely deployed without either great need or because there is a strong prospect of the Fallen's presence. Often their only appearance in a campaign will be at its final battle, 
where they will teleport in to annihilate the greatest of threats. So have towering war machines, mighty Xenos creatures, despotic rulers, and monstrous demons been destroyed. Strike Masters serve as the Deathwing's lieutenants, but have additional vital functions. Ranked more senior even than the Deathwing Knights, to Strike Masters falls the onerous duty of managing the jails deep within the rock, where the most treacherous prisoners are held and the most dangerous relics secured. To some chapters, managing their cells is a menial task, best left to lower-ranking space marines or even trusted serfs. For the Dark Angels, the danger posed by those they keep prisoner is so great that none less than some of the chapter's greatest heroes are sufficient for the task. It is the Deathwing Strike Masters who thrice write the name of each jailed prisoner upon the stiff pages of the Volumatis Elicitatum with the black quill upon the captive's internment, and scratch out the name upon the detainee's death. It is the Strike Masters who cleanse the cells of since-executed prisoners, reciting the 121 canticles of the Argent Crows as they do so to purify the space. They arrange the guards as they see fit, depending on the nature of the prisoners at a given moment, choosing the rotation of the black shrouds, the rotation of the bloody claws, or one of many dozen others devised by the Deathwing over the millennia. It is they who allocate and prepare the correct cell to those prisoners being brought to the rock. Not all of the Dark Angel's captives are of the Fallen, or are even space marines. Some are conniving Xenos, who require cells constructed with ancient technology that snuffs out all sound to ensure the occupant's lies cannot corrupt those nearby. Others are enormously powerful rogue human psychers, whose cells are lined with silver plating and psychic nullifiers. A fraction are former agents of the Dark Angel's sleeper cells, brought to the rock for interrogation and execution after their worth has been exhausted. All of these detainees share two things in common, however. The first is that, even in the slightest ways, they have knowledge of the Fallen. The second is, they will never leave alive. The rock's cells are secured by more than lock and key. Some only respond to specific invocations spoken in languages known to but a handful of individuals. Some will only open once in a given cycle of time, when an extremely rare incense is burned in their presence. Others are secured by rune sequences thousands of characters long that must be committed to memory and change every handful of days. Many more require specific biomarkers, psychic signatures, and esoteric coding mechanisms the workings of which even the Deathwing barely understand. 
the most revered land raiders, repulsors, and on occasion other battle tanks, those that have served the Dark Angels chapter the longest or with notable accomplishments, are granted a great honor, induction into the Deathwing. The holes of these vehicles are painted bone white, and the signs and markings of the Deathwing are wrought upon them so that forevermore they are reserved for use by the First Company. Some venerable dreadnoughts bear the bone-white armor of the Deathwing. Their occupants, veterans who served with distinction in the First Company before being laid low. Many of these interred warriors have bore witness to the chapter's secret hunt for millennia. And it is not uncommon for current members of the Inner Circle to enter the lower bays of the Armory in order to seek out their sage advice. Samael, Leader of the Hunt Grandmaster of the Ravenwing and Captain of the Second Company, Samael is the 348th Dark Angel to hold this role. He has served in this capacity for over a century, an unusually long period of time. The Ravenwing have suffered the loss of a master more than any other company in the Dark Angels chapter. He was also the youngest Dark Angel to ever be accepted into the Ravenwing, when then Grandmaster Gideon elevated him to the Brotherhood from the Eighth Company. After numerous early successes fighting orcs, terrilians, and traitors, Samael was later inducted into the Inner Circle and the Black Knights by Grandmaster Gideon after fighting against Eldari pirates on Caffon Betis. With the world subject to relentless harassment from the Xenos raiders, the Fallen were given ample opportunity to stoke the fires of rebellion among the population. Once the Eldari attacks were defeated, Samael interrogated a number of captured rebels, learning that an individual called Cypher was responsible for the uprising. It was this discovery that saw Samael elevated to the inner circle. Samael was made Grandmaster during the Kapua Uprising in which the Ravenwing engaged in brutal clashes with heretic Astartes of the Black Legion and word-bearers. In later fighting, the Ravenwing engaged the Chaos Reaver Titan Traitorous Ire, and Grandmaster Gideon was mortally wounded. Through blood-flecked lips, the Old Master declared Samael his successor and handed him the Raven Sword. This is the blade wielded by all Grand Masters of the Ravenwing, and forged from the same meteorite as the Sword of Secrets, the weapon carried by the Dark Angel's Supreme Grand Master. Samael is noted for his boldness, which often verges on recklessness. He prefers to take the fight to the enemy, drawing the Raven Sword to slash his foes down. Such traits are vital in the warrior commanding a company with a role dedicated to high-speed and hard-hitting surprise.
Nonetheless, he is a master at orchestrating feints, distracting maneuvers, and employing traps and ploys in his relentless pursuit of the foe. Samael can master his own desire to fight the enemy up close when he recognizes that victory is best achieved through calling in aid. The Ravenwing are the only dark angels outside the first company, trusted with the teleport homers that enable Deathwing Terminators to accurately deploy into a battle zone. And none have more daring than Samael when it comes to placing these devices. The Grand Master of the Ravenwing never sacrifices his duty for the sake of his personal pride, as is fitting for a warrior of the Dark Angels. So many are Samael's victories that none can recount them all. He uprooted the Hrud infestation that plagued the Qualivar system and turned its once proud merchant cities to decaying rubble. He purged the world of Lintus Arbedium of the enslavers that had taken over the minds of the planet's ruling body and governor, seizing the world's vital tithes of grainia paste that fed much of the subsector. It was Samael who opposed the onyx tyrant of Santa Tlusa, who had turned the once glorious paradise enclave into a hellish pit of brutal sadism. Though few of his Ravenwing brothers knew, the Onyx Tyrant was a member of the Fallen, who had been hunted to no avail for 2,000 years. Since the Great Rift's emergence, it has become harder and harder for Samael to conceal the Fallen's existence from those of his warriors not inducted into the Inner Circle, as Fallen activity has dramatically increased since turmoil in the galaxy surged. Whilst he has had great success hunting his chapter's quarry, Samael broods on those fallen who have escaped him, and his determination to see them all brought to justice has never been greater. Belial, Grand Master of the Deathwing Countless are the great deeds Belial has carried out to earn the title Grand Master of the Deathwing. Combined, they mark him as one of the chapter's most loyal paladins, and to know of his history is to read the account of a warrior destined for greatness. The annals in which Belial's life are recorded are locked away, preserved only for the eyes of future Grand Masters who might learn from his many victories. They tell that he hails from the semi-feudal world of Brigandia, born into a knightly order known as the Society of the Ebon Star. Imbued with a deep sense of honor and duty from birth, the record tells that when a dark angel's chaplain arrived on the world seeking fresh aspirants, Belial challenged him to single combat. Though the young, unaugmented Belial was inevitably defeated, he impressed the chaplain so much he was swiftly recruited. He brought to the rock with him that same determination and courage 
and soon excelled in all areas of training. His ascension to master of the third company came after he slayed the Chaos Lord Furion of the Skull Scythes warband in single combat. Furion, a follower of Korn, had already raised 17 star systems by the time he reached the cardinal world of Durga Principi. The third company began constructing defenses in the vast temple Saturnus. Such was the Chaos Lord's bloodlust that he force-marched his army through the night, catching the Dark Angels unaware. Brutal fighting spread into latticeworks of corridors, cloisters, and chambers. Master Nadel fell early in the fighting, with Belial acting in his stead. Ordering the withdrawal of his company, he led a rear guard into the maze. In the ensuing conflict, he struck down Furion in combat. It was Azrael himself who then made Belial master of the Third Company, at the same time awarding him with the Sword of Silence. A blade forged from the same meteorite as the Sword of Secrets, and traditionally granted to the chapter's greatest fighter. Belial earned yet more renown at the Battle of Peschina IV, defending the world's capital, Cadillus Harbor. He led the Third Company in a weeks-long delaying battle against the Greenskin Horde. At their head, none other than Gazkol Thraka, that outnumbered his warriors thousands to one. Belial was wounded facing the gigantic orc warlord, but continued to lead his warriors for weeks longer, time enough for the rest of the Dark Angels chapter to arrive and save Piscina IV. Belial's heroics there were noticed by the upper echelons of the chapter, and he was promoted to the rank of Grand Master of the Deathwing following the death of Gabriel, the previous holder of the title. Though Belial's tally of victories is long and great indeed, he celebrates none of them, instead dwelling on his defeats and perceived failures. No doubt bred into him by his severe upbringing, as well as the Dark Angel's stern ways, he leads his warriors in the same way. Even after winning glorious victories, he gives each combatant their own specific penance, whether it be battle drills, hymnals, or arduous rites of atonement. Those beneath him welcome this, each seeing it as a way to improve themselves. Belial's methods have led to unparalleled success in battle, converting the most skeptical in the chapter to his ways. These achievements include the purging of the labyrinthian seabed fortress of Akloth, the destruction of the hundred orbital cities of Lycir, and the clearing of the scorching deserts of Aspar. As a warrior, Belial's combat technique has no great style, flourish, or artifice. Instead, it is driven by a ruthless killing efficiency and well-honed strength. 
Each of his parries and thrusts is a decisive and precise act. And Belial's strategies and tactics on the battlefield are no different, leading him to victory in ruinous, bomb-churned cityscapes, in fierce boarding actions, in grueling space hulk clearances, and every other environment of war. Interrogator Chaplains Menacing figures, the Dark Angels Interrogator Chaplains, unsettle even their own battle brothers with their silent scrutiny. Sworn to the inner circle during a convoluted ceremony in the Hall of Secrets, every Interrogator Chaplain has passed the test of faith, taken the solemn vow of the Deathwing, and learned the dark secrets of his chapter's history. Interrogator Chaplains are changed warriors. The Battle Brothers they were before they took their oaths no longer truly exist. And as the years go by, the difference grows all the starker. Once, close battle brothers no longer look them in the eye and greet them only with the most formal words and gestures. A warrior who might have been relatively jovial amongst the Dark Angels develops a deep, intense silence upon becoming an interrogator chaplain. They have no time for the concerns of their previous life. Now, their every waking moment is spent identifying hints of heresy or weakness within the chapter and without. What the interrogator chaplains learn of their chapter's deep and disturbing history contributes greatly to the shift in their manner, as learning of the true fallibility of their brothers is a reality-shaking experience. But it is their unique duties that affect them most. It is their responsibility to extract confessions from the captured fallen that are brought back to the rock. And they must do so by any means necessary. Even for a mind as attuned to the dispensation and witnessing of incredible violence as a space marine's, the horrific acts an interrogator chaplain must inflict on their captives are a tremendous burden to bear indeed. Their will must truly be unshakable, not only to carry out deeds over a period of weeks that would cause even other space marines to blanch, but also because of what they might hear during that time. The fallen they excruciate unleash endless heretical rantings, lie profusely, and speak of events and individuals no dark angel has ever heard of. The interrogator chaplains must listen to all of this and extract rare truth from volumes of fiction whilst keeping their souls intact. It is a process that sours them, but one that must be born if salvation is to be attained for the unforgiven. Asmodai is the Dark Angel's master interrogator chaplain and master of repentance. His talents for torture and interrogation 
first made themselves known during the Makarian heresy, when he set to work questioning the leaders of a rebel group. He displayed his ruthlessness and determination when hunting the instigator of the rebellion and fighting his way free of the traitor's deadly ambush that followed. Such an act saw him elevated to the inner circle, and he chose the path of the interrogator chaplain. Since then, he has earned a formidable reputation amongst the unforgiven, as well as the fallen themselves. A great many of the traitors have heard the tales of Asmodai, and there are few things they fear more than remorseless interrogation at his hands. Asmodai does not suffer fools or weakness of any kind. His interests lie only in the chapter's goals and in battle, such as Asmodai's motivation. Many of his actions border on the indefensible. He ordered the orbital bombardment of the city of Hostengard, stating without regret or hesitation that the death of 50,000 innocents was preferable to one traitor escaping. Though over time, Azrael has covered up Asmodai's actions, or moved swiftly to protect the Dark Angel's reputation, this was a statement too far. He revoked Asmodai's command status and placed the interrogator chaplain within the chapter's 10th company structure, where he oversaw the induction of aspirants. His methods were not softened by the censure. He went on to order the slaughter of all new recruits from the planet Narchium because of their lackluster answers to his inquiries raised the question of gene stock contamination. Later, upon hearing laughter in the halls of the rock, he placed the penance of silence upon the entire seventh company. For a standard Terran year, the formation was unable to utter a sound save for hymnals and in-battle communications. Asmodai has made enemies in the Inquisition and even risked conflict with other Space Marine chapters. But no Dark Angel can contest his dedication to the chapter. To him, the ends justify the means. In combat, Asmodai's zeal reaches new levels, inciting the fighting spirits of his battle brothers to a fever pitch. He led the frontal assault against the traitorous Helstinian 89th, smashing through the heretics. As the Dark Angels held the walls of the Fortress of Eternal Devotion, Asmodai's oratory filled the ravine the mighty bastion was built into, stealing the Dark Angels to hold for weeks against relentless demon assaults. Asmodai single-handedly stormed the Barbarican of Helican Citadel, when the meta-heretics of Alancantis Nocturnus unleashed the power of their Moonsingers, opening the gates to allow the Ravenwing to pierce the heart of the enemy fortress. In addition to his Crozius Arcanum, Asmodai bears the Blades of Reason, normally kept in a sacred reliquary made from stone hewn from old Caliban's bedrock. The Blades of Reason are an ancient, arcane, and horrific device 
that resembles a knife with many honed and polished blades. It is etched with scriptures of repentance, and crisscrossing the weapon are cables and fine neural wires, mysterious technology that amplifies pain beyond endurance. None who feel its touch live to tell the tale. It is said that the fallen fear the blades of reason above even death itself, for none can suffer beneath it and resist the urge to beg for forgiveness or death. Whilst not primarily designed for combat, numerous master interrogator chaplains have used the blades of reason throughout the ages incapacitating the most dangerous foes. Azrael, Supreme Grand Master of the Dark Angels. Azrael is arguably the greatest to ever hold the title of Supreme Grand Master. His martial skill and strategic nose are well regarded throughout the Imperium. Deeply committed to his chapter's secret agenda, the hunt for the fallen is never far from his mind, and in recent years, his thoughts on their threat have only grown more grave. Though doubtless recorded in the Dark Angel's archives, Azrael's origins are largely a mystery to most of the chapter and outsiders. Rumors persist, however, that he was recruited from the savage headhunting tribes of the feral world of Chimeria, one of the multiple Dark Angels recruiting worlds. Azrael climbed through the ranks rapidly. He consistently demonstrated his warrior and leadership skills during his time in the Deathwing, as captain of the Third Company and Grandmaster of the Deathwing, before he was chosen to succeed Supreme Grandmaster Niberius. Though an individual of few words, as befits a warrior of the Dark Angels, when Azrael does speak, it is with an unbreakable conviction and absolute righteousness. He has the fullest confidence of his battle brothers, repeatedly earned on countless bloody battlefields, where he not only leads from the front, cutting down the Unforgiven's enemies, but demonstrates near peerless mastery of the arts of war. He is as capable of employing multi-system campaign strategies as he is the fine craft of squad-based tactics, orchestrating warriors from no fewer than eight unforgiven chapters. He brought about the ruin of the stellar empire of Azarul, a word-bearer's warlord who had subjected a dozen worlds to his twisted and blasphemous tyranny. In contrast, Azrael led the insertion of Elegus Hive from the Hive world of Kelini in person, at the head of a handful of Deathwing squads. Together, they slaughtered the rebel leadership who had stubbornly held there for years against Astra Militarum sieges, ending their revolution in a matter of hours. Successor Chapters the Dark Angels swiftly agreed to Gilliman's decree to break up the Space Marine Legions. To do otherwise was to invite unwelcome scrutiny 
at a time of immense turmoil. The Dark Angels have a strong bond with the vast majority of their successor chapters, born out of their shared guilt and mission. Even after the dissolution of the Legion, the successors met regularly in clandestine fashion, sharing battlefield intelligence and maintaining ancient traditions. This has extended to all their successor chapters founded since. Most of the Dark Angels' successors follow their parent chapters' distinctive organization, including equivalents to the Deathwing and Ravenwing. The Angels of Vengeance call theirs the Dreadwing and Raptorwing, respectively. The Angels of Redemption's first and second companies are known as the Redwings, the inner circle of the Guardians of the Covenant is called the Secret Order, and for the Angels of Absolution, it is the Hidden Brotherhood. Insignium Calabanus The Dark Angels and their successors, like any chapter of the Adeptus Astartes, have great suites of different heraldry that they depict on their armor, weapons, banners, and the flanks of their armored vehicles and starships. The Dark Angels' organization largely follows that of the Codex Astartes, with its 3rd through 10th companies organized along Codex lines. The Deathwing, though unusual in its access to a considerable number of suits of Terminator armor, at least appears to follow a structure similar to that mandated for a chapter's first company. The chapters of the Unforgiven have a range of heraldic insignia and symbols, which to any imperial observer have proven impossible to interpret and catalog. Any who has thought themselves successful has been proven wrong at the Dark Angel's next observed engagement. The symbols used are rooted in deep imperial history, to the time of the Great Crusade and even before. They are a blend of ancient Calibanite knightly symbology as well as the various orders of the First Legion from before its reunion with the Lion. Their meaning and use has slowly evolved and changed over time as old meanings had been lost or forgotten, or as battlefield expediency has dictated. There is also variety in their use across the Unforgiven chapters who, for reasons known only to them, may place particular significance on different symbols and sigils. <laughs>